This is the Industry Matters Podcast, powered by BGM, a post-acute healthcare podcast about community, connections, and belonging. BGM is a member service organization serving durable and home medical equipment providers and manufacturers. BGM also has communities for respiratory, complex rehab, women's health mastectomy, home accessibility, and orthotics and prosthetics industries. In today's episode of Industry Matters, we are talking with Todd Egan, president of OPGA, along with Wayne Van Halem of the Van Halem Group, about audits. Todd, please give us a little bit more background on today's topic. Hi, Mandy, and thank you. So today we are talking about every O&P provider's favorite subject, and that is audits. And so fortunate to have one of the national thought leaders and experts uh, in this area with us today, uh, Wayne Van Halem, who is a founder and CEO of the Van Halem Group located in Atlanta, Georgia. Wayne, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks, Todd. It's great to be with you and good to talk to you. You Over the years, you have provided incredible assistance, I know, to not just OPGA members, but the entire O&P profession, so I'm, I'm looking forward to, to picking your brain a little bit more in this podcast and, and hopefully in a continued uh, attempt to, to help O&P providers. So with that said, I'll start off. When did uh, you start hearing that the audits have started up again? Um, well, it was uh, there was a, a very quiet announcement that was uh, made that towards the end of July. Um, from CMS, it was in a, a frequently asked questions document. It was not part of a normal press release, um, but one of the responses to one of the questions uh, indicated that they intended to restart audits on August 3rd, um, regardless of the state of the public health emergency. Um, so August 3rd was the initial announcement. We got notified again late late July. Um, they did come back and, and clarify that there would be a slight delay again, and it was delayed until August 18th was when the, the auditors would actually start auditing. So they announced August 3rd, but I guess they, they wanted to clarify some things with the audit entities and, and eventually on August 18th is when they started back up. Okay, so that leads me to the next question is in your professional opinion, why do you think CMS started them or the contractors started them back before the end of, of the pandemic? Well, you know, it, it's a good question. So, uh, you know, a couple thoughts come to mind. Uh, one of which, the the, you know, it it, it goes to the severity of uh, the pandemic, right? Because I, in you know, my over twenty years of of working in the program integrity space, both um, uh, as uh, in, with CMS as well as um, in my consulting career. Never in a million years did I ever foresee that the government would completely stop auditing healthcare providers for an extended period of time, but that happened, and I think it was the right call considering everything that, that was going on. I mean, it was a, a public health emergency unlike anything we'd ever seen before. But I think then there were things that started happening during that public health emergency um, that gave CMS pause. Um, and, and some of that is any time 
there's, uh, you know, a situation in, in which, you know, true fraudsters can take advantage of a situation. They're going to try to do that. And I think we started seeing those types of things happening. Um, and I think um, that uh, concerned the government and the fact that they, um, there, there are a couple other uh, flexibilities that they implemented, one of which was on the, the enrollment side. So they, they wanted to make it easier for entities to enroll as a demi-post um, provider. And in order to do that, they took away um, the background check requirements, fingerprinting requirements, application fees. They took away the requirement that someone get a, be accredited um, and essentially said that you can be enrolled as a uh, demi-post provider within a short period of time. Those of us in the industry for a long time, that was really scary. Um, those, while some of those things are, are burdensome, it does protect our, our industry from people coming in and defrauding and, and giving the industry a black eye. But the government, you know, wanted to make it easier to get these for beneficiaries to receive services. So they opened opened all that enrollment piece up. But then they started seeing things, you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm still a, an accredited fraud investigator and, and certified fraud examiner. And for that, I have to go through training and, and get CEUs and things like that. And I was attending some, some trainings. And what we started hearing from some of these groups is that there were uh, scams that were being perpetrated. And um, uh, a lot of it uh, had to do with off-the-shelf orthotics again. Um, so we had the big, um, you know, operation brace yourself with all the um, telehealth and all that fraud that was was going on. Well, we had heard that there were they had undercover or they had un uncovered a scheme in which there were uh, individuals that were cold calling um, Medicare beneficiaries, and in the call they told the Medicare beneficiaries that um, the the administration is requiring all Medicare beneficiaries to take COVID tests. And as a result of that, they requested, you know, specific information from the patients. And um, the reality is, is some patients, unfortunately, fell for that and provided that information. And about three weeks later, these uh, beneficiaries received um, items of medical equipment, including diabetic supplies, including um, off-the-shelf orthotics. So I think CMS started seeing these types of things happen and uh, as a result decided that, uh, you know, regardless of the status of the public health emergency that they need to start auditing again. So I, I think that's probably why um, we're seeing that that thing occur is they didn't want it to go on too long um, without there essentially being anyone watching over um, what is happening with the claims. So they also maybe looked at claims data and saw significant increases in volumes of certain claims, which, you know, during a pandemic that, you know, respiratory equipment, for example, that's that's reasonable. But when you start seeing, you know, significant increases in, in other claims like off-the-shelf orthotics, it's maybe more of an indication of something nefarious going on versus something legit. Sure, sure. Well, it is, it is unfortunate and I guess points truly to the case that a few bad apples can ruin the bushel and it seems like these days too that there's not uh, two or three weeks that go by that, that we don't see a new OIG report regarding these dropship uh, companies with the, the OTS braces. So 
Yeah, it's 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 really a shame. It's just it's really hurting our industry, and and it's putting a unnecessary scrutiny on on those out there trying to do things the correct way. I mean, if they're billing for right. orthotics, they're oftentimes the result of additional scrutiny because of that. Correct. So, moving forward, what should O and P providers expect here through the end of the year into twenty one? What are your thoughts there? Sure. So, you know, initially what CMS, in initial conversations after the announcement that we had with CMS central office, they, they indicated that, you know, the return to audits was going to be more of a toe in the water type of approach. Um, they said that they were not going to audit claims that were submitted during the period of the public health emergency and that they would only be looking at claims submitted prior to March 1st. The claims would be solely post-payment reviews, which um, brings a whole other sort of uh, level of concern that we'll talk about. But, you know, a post-payment review, the reason why they wanted to only do post-payment reviews is because of the fact that they didn't want to hold up providers' money during the, the pandemic. And certainly I can, you know, appreciate that, but, you know, doing post-payment reviews leads to overpayments, right? And, and when we're looking at, you know, some of the custom orthotics and prosthetics that the OPGA members do, an overpayment is a significant burden because the products are so expensive. Um, so, you know, an overpayment on a couple of claims um, for a custom orthotic and prosthetic is going to be a significant issue for that um, supplier to deal with. And then they're going to have to go back and, and go through the appeal process and things along those lines, whereas you know, on, the, on a prepayment review, the, the claims are denied um, and, and you can essentially try to restart the process. But with a postpayment review, there's no way to, to restart that process. So that's, you know, I, we, I haven't seen a ton. We, we've seen audits, obviously, and off-the-shelf orthotics. Haven't seen a whole lot yet since they restarted in anything custom, but I anticipate, you know, as we uh, are, go, we're seeing a lot of audits in other areas. Um, so as, you know, I think as we uh, wind down the, this this year in the fourth quarter, we'll start slowly seeing an increase in audits um, in you know, all, all areas, and we'll probably continue seeing that increase uh, as the, you know, hopefully the public health emergency sort of, um, you know, winds down and we, we start moving past that. Um, I think we'll just start seeing the audits going back to what the previous, the volume was previously. So with that said, uh, that leads me to ask you, what is the best way or what are your recommendations on how OMP providers prepare for what you're projecting? So I guess the, the key thing from my perspective is, you know I, know, I understand that there's a lot of flexibilities that are being afforded now currently with, with not having signatures on certain documents and things along those lines. I'd highly recommend that uh, they still try to adhere to what the existing rules and regulations were prior to the public health emergency wherever possible, because CMS has, has indicated discussions that we've had with them is, is that when the public health emergency is over, that there may have to be some sort of requalification process for beneficiaries. Now, I, I think 
where they're probably leaning more towards things like oxygen, where oxygen prior to the public health emergency was only available for patients with chronic conditions, and they changed it to, to individuals with short-term conditions so that COVID patients, for example, could have access to oxygen, whereas previously they wouldn't have qualified. Um, so I definitely, I see a requalification process there, but we just don't know with these, you know, signature requirements if they're going to um, make sh make people go back and, and try to requalify patients. So I think it's really important to, wherever possible, try to adhere to the rules. But the flexibilities are there for a reason, and if you can't you get a signature, you can't get certain things, then then you can certainly take care, you know take advantage of those, I would recommend flagging those patients so that in the event down the road there's something happens, we know which patients were during COVID, we know why we didn't meet certain requirements, and then we know which patients we would have to go back to in the event there is some sort of requalification process. Another item that I sort of, you know, is always going to be important is uh, proactive compliance. Um, I think when the audits sort of stop for a period of time that people tend to get complacent. So if you haven't seen audits in a while, you're not maybe perhaps focusing on your documentation or the, the medical documentation. Um, and that's where we see folks have so much trouble when they do get audited is, you know, their documentation, you know, in, in the situation where there's a replacement uh, socket done. The, the documentation just doesn't really do a good job of explaining why that replacement socket was necessary. Or, you know, when documenting function level, the, you know, the, certainly the prosthetist documents now um, do count as part of the medical record. However, the MACs are saying it still must be corroborated by the physician documents. So we'll see sometimes where the physician record will We'll talk about certain comorbidities that certainly would have an impact on someone's ability to, to ambulate, um, but then the, the prosthetist's documentation paints a, a different picture, and, and that's where folks sort of get in trouble. So just making sure you're staying on top of that. And if you're a, an entity that's billing and accepting payment from Medicare, you're required to have a compliance program, which requires you know, regular um, auditing at various intervals. You know, we provide that service for a lot of our, our customers, but you know, it's just coming in and every quarter maybe doing an audit on a, a sample of claims and saying, hey, here's where we need to do better and here's things that need to be improved. Um, so in the event of an audit down the road, you have some level of comfort that you know, you, your documentation has what it needs in there. So you know, being proactive, but also trying to adhere to those rules as they existed prior to the public health emergency are probably two of the most important things I think suppliers should do to, to prepare. So let me go back to something you said early in that, that answer. Re regarding documentation requirements, proper signatures, proper notes, does telehealth or has telehealth played a, a part in that? Yeah, it sure has. So the CMS has really sort of um, loosened the restrictions on telehealth, whereas before, you know, the, the Medicare rules on telehealth were really, really archaic. I mean, they were, you know, designed back in the, the, the 80s. Um, and telehealth, the, the intent from Medicare's perspective of telehealth was for beneficiaries who lived in a rural area. And they, they didn't have access to a specialist, for example, in a specific area. So the, the idea was that they would actually go into their 
physician's records in, or I'm sorry, they'd go into their physician's office and they would be able to talk to their regular physician and then they would do a telehealth visit with a physician, a specialist in another area of the country. So that's really what the intent was. So it's really restricted a lot of the rules on there for these beneficiaries because they couldn't, like even a patient's home was not an approved area to have telehealth. They had to actually go into a physician office and there had to be certain equipment. But they've taken away all of those restrictions and now they've even allowed for just a telephone call with your physician um, is a billable and reimbursable telehealth visit currently under the public health emergency. Um, there are certainly a lot of entities out there that are attempting to try to make some of these changes and, and flexibilities permanent. I think we will see that happen. I don't know if it'll be to the extent that it is now, but I think it'll certainly be easier. But now, you know, even if the beneficiary lives in an urban area and they have a telephone call with their physician, um, if the physician documents and shows that the patient meets the criteria and, and does a good job, that's absolutely acceptable. The only thing I'll caution people about is you know, one of the things with telehealth that they did when it comes to things like respiratory equipment, they did just essentially throw out the LCDs and they said none of the none of the requirements of the LCD uh, for respiratory equipment apply right now. So you're not required to have certain tests, you're not required, you can do, you know, it's short term, get an order, then you're good to go. Um, but that's only on respiratory equipment. They didn't do that on other items, including orthotics and prosthetics. So the LCD requirements are still there. So if you're talking about things like you know, changes in the residual limb and, and things along those lines, they have to do a really good job of, of being able to document that and, and those requirements haven't gone away. So that's the only thing I would caution them about in the event that they're using um, documentation based upon um, telehealth is that they do in fact take into consideration what those LCD requirements are. Well, that's, that is great insight, Wayne. I, I do know from speaking with OPGA members throughout the last several months that there are many of them that have utilized telehealth and they've utilized it successfully, but it's a great insight. That's great. I think we're going to see a, a heck of a lot more of it uh, even after the public health emergency. I think CMS really has opened their eyes to how uh, restrictive their previous policy was, and, and I think we'll see uh, that become a lot more active. Well, and you mentioned, too, that there's different organizations that are proposing to, to CMS and Congress, actually, um, yeah. in support of telehealth, and the ONP Alliance is certainly one of those. So looking forward, I guess last question, we're kind of running out of time here, but what other things should providers be concerned about or worried about that maybe on the horizon? Yeah, I would say a couple of quick things. Prior authorization obviously um, has started for um, providers, so making sure that they're following suit with that, you know, the microprocessor knees and the ankles as well as the flank, uh, the flex and the shank feet. Um, so that's started now across the country. So um, keeping an eye on that and making sure that you're following those um, guidelines. Uh, hopefully we, you know, uh, other areas where they've implemented this prior authorization, they really like it. So that's good. Um, hopefully this, uh, we, we'll find the same with these prosthetics. 
Another area that's a little concerning for me, there's a six-year look-back rule. Um, that's part of the Affordable Care Act. We're seeing the government implement this now more often, and we've actually seen it with some prosthetic practices that we've been working with. And it's any time, essentially, there's an overpayment identified, whether you identified internally or um, it's, it's identified externally, um, they're requiring providers to go back six years and audit 100% of their claims, either through statistical sampling or through an actual 100% claim audit to determine if that overpayment applies to other claims in that six-year period. So huge burden on providers, and if they don't adhere to it, then there's potential False Claim Act implications down the road. So we're, we're dealing with this now with some even some small prosthetic practices being faced with this. And, and the fact that, you know, we talked earlier about the return to audits from CMS, they're only doing post-payment reviews, which means they're going to be identifying overpayments. And as soon as that happens, that kicks in this, this six-year look-back rule. So um, you'll start seeing language in any overpayment demands that talks about doing a self-audit. And if you see that language that implicates that 60-day rule and that six-year look-back, and you'll need to pay particular attention to that. I'd say the last thing is the ALJ backlog. So one of the, I guess, a positive thing that has come out of the pandemic is the fact that there were very few appeals entering into the uh, OMHA, the Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals Systems. So um, that backlog that was, you know, four or five years to get an ALJ hearing is getting uh, very quickly resolved, and we're getting that number down significantly. In fact, last time I talked with them, the, the reason the, the time period was still so long was because they were putting aside all of their big box cases to try to get the smaller claims out of the system. Well, any of the ALJ hearings that we're having scheduled right now are all big box cases. So I know they're getting through that backlog. The, the concern is once that backlog is resolved, they'll be uh, staffed to handle about 300,000 appeals per year, and they're getting nowhere near that amount right now. Um, because CMS has really limited the auditors as to how much they can audit. So I, I don't anticipate them, you know, getting rid of uh, the 70 new judges they hired or closing the seven new offices they opened. Um, my guess is what we'll start seeing is them loosening up some of the, the restraints they put on the rack auditors and others, and we'll start seeing an increase in the volume of audits once that backlog is resolved, and I anticipate that's going to be sometime in the 2021. So that's one thing I'm really keeping an eye on because that's a big concern for me because we know how bad the, the rack audits were for the OMP industry several years ago. Well, Wayne, I, we are, we're coming up on our, our time here. I again want to thank you, not just for your time today, but you just ended on how difficult the racks were for the profession when they started in October 2012. And uh, there is no question that you have helped throughout that time period, then until now, hundreds of OPGA members. So I want to thank you. For Ironically, we're still fighting some of those in the appeal process with the backlog. <laughs> exactly, in the backlog, right? I want to thank you again for your expertise and your passion for the profession and, and everything you provide. Thanks, Todd. It's, it's great to be here and be with you. Stay safe, everyone. Thank you for listening to Industry Matters. Make sure you never miss an episode by visiting bgm.com forward slash Industry Matters podcast.